Let me encourage you to grab your Bible and open up to Romans chapter 12. It's good to be together this afternoon, and especially good to uh, sing the praises of our King. I got to tell you, you were singing this morning like you really believed it, which is awesome. And um, it's, it's, it's nice to have this room so filled and to hear the voices reverberating in this place. And I, I want to encourage us this morning to continue to look at the topic of worship. That's what Paul has been pointing our eyes and our heart towards. He's moved from chapters 1 through 11 into chapter 12 now, and he's driving this idea of worship into our hearts. And the dominating theme from chapter 12 all the way through essentially the middle of chapter 15 is this idea that our, our worship is more than just singing. It's not less than that, but it is so far greater than that. It involves all of us, every aspect of our being and our lives. I just want to read the first two verses, then I have a little bit of an extended introduction that's really important for us this morning. Paul writes these words, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. What Paul is doing here, if I could summarize it, is he's calling us to make a stand. Make a stand against conformity to the world and and the ways of the world and the thinking of the world and calling us to take a stand for conformity to the will of God. That's essentially what he's doing. And Taking a stand has been important throughout all of human history, and in the life of the church, this has been particularly important. There have been instances in the history of the church where it was appropriate to take a very clear stand for what is right and true and biblical, to push back against certain kinds of thinking that conflict with the clear teachings of the Word of God. We need to do that as a church, even this morning. No, this is not about COVID-19. The earliest example of this kind of stand is actually found in the New Testament at the very onset of the church. In Acts chapter 4 and 5, the apostles had just been filled with the Holy Spirit and were going about preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. They were doing so with tremendous effectiveness. And thousands of people were embracing Jesus Christ, and controversy was being stirred up amongst both the Jews and the Romans at the time, so much so that the apostles, the first apostles who were preaching the gospel, were actually reprimanded. They were put in prison for a brief time, and they were warned not to continue preaching in this name, Jesus Christ. They were released fairly quickly, And they were charged, Acts chapter 4.18 says, they were called and they were charged not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered with these 
profound and powerful words, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have heard and seen. They were further threatened, warned, and they continued to do what God had told them to do. Their response was respectful, but it was at the same time convictional. It was immovable. They knew exactly what God had called them to do, and they weren't going to refrain from doing it. In a similar way, in 1517, on October 31st specifically, a former German monk by the name of Martin Luther attached to the door at Wittenberg Castle a list of 95 theses for debate around the unbiblical practices of the Catholic Church. Many of you know the history of the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation, but in a nutshell, Luther ends up denying the authority of the Pope, and at this time in history, church and state were very much joined together. As a result, he is condemned, his books are to be burned, he is given two months to recant or to face excommunication. He receives this letter warning him of these things, he takes the letter and he burns it openly in public. The emperor summons Luther to appear at the Diet of Worms, and he orders him to recant. He states these words that are now famous for us in the Protestant church in particular. He says, I, can't, I am bound by the scriptures, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot, I will not recant anything. It is that phrase there that is essential to understand. By the way, Luther was not offering a cry for civil liberty. That is often how he's interpreted today. That is not so. This is not a cry for individual rights. What was he saying? Luther was acknowledging that his conscience was now free from the chains of worldly humanistic thinking that had gripped the culture of his day. And he was making clear that his conscience was now subject in totality to the word of God. I am bound by the scriptures and my conscience is captive to the word of God. Like Luther, Peter, and John before him, there are times for public statements of commitment to the word of God. This morning, we are going to do just that. In fact, this morning, this very specific morning, afternoon, we are joining with hundreds, actually thousands now of churches across Canada to stand in solidarity in terms of our commitment to the Word of God. I want to read to you a statement that was drafted and uh, that churches have agreed to read. It's in relation to Bill C-4. Many of you are familiar with what's going on. Some of you are not as familiar with the passing of this new legislation, and hopefully in this letter you will gain some context and some understanding. The letter reads as follows. This past week marked a monumental change in Canadian law and society with the enactment of Federal Bill C-4, which amends the criminal code. The law's stated purpose is to outlaw conversion therapy. We strongly oppose the coercive and unscientific therapeutic practices the bill was introduced to address. 
we appreciate and affirm the desire of parliamentarians to protect the vulnerable. However, we are deeply concerned that the effective reach of the legislation could be extended far beyond its stated purpose. Because its definition of conversion therapy is vague, many are concerned that it could capture parents, pastors, and counselors who teach a biblical understanding of sexuality in a variety of situations. The Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms guarantees our freedoms of religion, conscious, conscience, excuse me, thought, belief, expression, and association. It is our prayer that the law will be applied and clarified as needed in such a way as to honor these charter protections. We recognize that the greatest danger facing the Canadian church is not that we might face criminal prosecution, but rather we might compromise in our teaching of the Word of God or fall silent in our proclamation of the gospel. Along with the church leaders of like conviction across Canada, we stand before you today to pledge that we are committed to obeying God above all others, according to Acts 5.29. With the Lord's help, we will continue to proclaim the whole counsel of God without fear or favor. This includes God's life-giving design for human beings made in His image, male and female, with sexual intimacy reserved for the covenantal union of a man and a woman. We will continue to issue the call to repent of all kinds of sin and to believe the gospel, knowing that we all have sinned and that salvation through Jesus Christ is the one true hope for the world. We will continue to love and serve all people in our community without distinction in Jesus' name as we press on in the work of ministry. We will trust our Heavenly Father to guard us and keep us and to work out His great purpose for our good and His glory. We continue to pray for our government and to plead with the Lord to have mercy on our needy land. Amen. In light of that, let's just take a moment to pray again. Father in heaven, um, we, we read this statement with deep conviction. Understanding, God, what you have called us to is to be a people of conviction who are unwilling to compromise the truth of your word, specifically the truth of the gospel, what you reveal about the reality of humanity, of the nature of sin, and our need for a savior. Father, we do pray for those in power, those in our government. We ask for you to have mercy and grace upon them. We pray, Father, that you would help them to lead in a way that is honorable, right, and true. We pray, God, for those who are in our government, who are opposed to your word, opposed to the kind of values and morality and ideology that would come to us from the divine mind, from your word. And we ask, Father, that you would bring about conviction in their own lives. We pray, Father, most importantly, not just that they would govern our nation well, but, Lord, that you would convict them and bring them to repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, as a church, we would continue to stand firm that we would be gracious and respectful and honorable to those in authority, but we would be unflinching in our resolve to stand firm and fast upon the word of God. Help us in this, we pray, for your glory. Amen. Uh, we are bound by the scriptures and our collective conscience is held captive by the word of God. Uh, Luther famously said, here I stand, and here we stand. 
collectively, the people of God. Here we stand upon the foundation and authority of the Word of God. Here we stand, the people of God, under the authority of the Word of God, called to be uncompromising, unfailing in our resolve to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is exactly what Paul is addressing, believe it or not, in Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. He is contrasting two ways of thinking, and therefore two ways of living and behaving. He's contrasting the way of the world with the way of God's will. What we will, what will have ultimate sway over our lives, that's what he's getting after in this passage. Will it be the world of man or will it be the Word of God? He's coming out of verse 1 where he's called us to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, calling us to offer ourselves in totality as a reasonable act of worship unto the Lord. He's grounded upon the mercies of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and now he wants to flesh that out and help us understand how, how is it exactly that we offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. His answer is right here in verse 2. And what he does is addresses or identifies two patterns or ways of thinking and therefore living that we need to embrace. I want to frame it like this, just two points this morning. First, our lives of worship are seen by how we refuse to be conformed to the world. The very beginning of this verse, verse 2, he says, do not be conformed to this world. Again, he's describing a pattern. It's, it's a way of, of thinking that he's drawing our attention to. But we need to ask and answer a couple of questions so we, we fully understand this. For example, what is this world of which Paul is speaking? What does he mean when he uses this world? Well, he's not simply meaning this physical world or physical reality. The word that he uses in the Greek is aeon. Literally, it's been translated in some Bibles as this age. Elsewhere in the New Testament, it's, it's translated just that as age, this current age, this present age. In other words, this world is uh, this age. And this age, this world is always contrasted with the coming age. There are two ages that the New Testament in particular talks about, this present age and a coming age that has been, listen, inaugurated in Jesus Christ. It's always held, the world is, in contrast to the kingdom of God. There is the age that is ruled by Jesus Christ, and in this age, there is life, joy, and peace, and that's held in contrast to this world, this age that is ruled by sin and Satan and death. Paul draws our attention to this language in Galatians chapter 4, verse 1. It'll be on the screen. He says this, who gave himself, speaking of Jesus, for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. 
Paul says that Christ gave himself. The gospel, in effect, it actually transfers us from one age into another age. The gospel, the death of Jesus Christ, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the exaltation of Jesus Christ has an intended purpose to transfer us from one world into another. The New Testament actually unfolds this idea, helping us to define what this world is. Let me give you a couple of examples. 1 John 2, 15 through 17, listen to what John says. He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, here's what he says, listen, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world, listen to this, is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 3 says this, adding some deeper dimensions to this. He says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You see, the world belongs to this present evil age. What Paul is saying in Romans 12 here is that there is this pressure that we experience to be conformed to the world. Or in contrast, a pressure to be conformed to the will of God. And by the way, it's helpful to understand that this is a pressure both inside of us and outside of us. And it's important to acknowledge that because sometimes we want to place the, the, the problem out there. The world is the problem. It's everything going on out there. But the Bible makes it very clear. Be careful that you don't fall into that trap. The reason that it's so tempting out there is because we have a problem in here. The reason we're so enticed by the things out there is because there is desire and passions flourishing in here. But make no mistake about it, this present evil age is trying to squeeze us into a certain mold But notice again, we read this, but but it's so helpful to understand that this world, this present age is passing away. It's coming to nothing and will one day fall under the just judgment of God. And all those who love this world and were conformed by it and to it will be swept away in righteous judgment along with it. But the New Testament also wants to make it clear that there is still yet an age to come. It's broken into the present in some ways, but the fullness of this new age to come is still future. We're still awaiting this reality. It will look like a renewed creation, a new heaven and a new earth where there will be no more sin, death, no more evil desire, no more Satan. It will be a place where righteousness rules and reigns and our God will dwell with us again. And you see, that the reason Paul has to address this the way he does in this single verse is because we, as Christians, are living in this overlap of the ages. 
We're living in this present world, and we're impacted and influenced by this present world, and some of us is, is still tempted by this present world, and yet part of us is already made new. We are a new creation in Christ. We are the first fruits of that new creation, and so there's this, this tension, this dual or competing pressures like a tug of war that's going on in our hearts every single day. I feel it, don't you? And that age to come, it has already begun. You say, when did it begin? Well, it began at the first coming of Jesus with His crucifixion, resurrection, His ascension, His exaltation. Again, keep in mind, Christ has been exalted. He's currently seated at the right hand of the Father. Paul says it like this in Ephesians 1.21, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. But the problem we face is this, that this, this present age won't fully give way to the age to come until Jesus returns at His second coming. It's already, but it's not yet. It's inaugurated, but it's not yet consummated. It is now spiritual and invisible, but when Christ returns and does away with the old creation and the cosmos is completely renewed or recreated, there is a new heaven and a new earth, that age to come, where that invisible spiritual kingdom will give way to a physical, visible kingdom. And it's critical to understand this, because it helps us make sense of the tension that we experience every day, the pressure, the pull. We are not immune to pressure. And we're certainly not immune to the pressure from the world. And the reason we have to embrace the pressure from the world that also plays upon and taps into the pressure from within, that sin nature that still exists and we wrestle against, we fight against, the reason is because we could be tempted to simply try to flee the world, thinking that getting away from the world is the solution to our problems, the answer to our struggle. But the Bible doesn't allow that kind of thinking. You see, the answer to the pressure from outside is not to move away to some hippie commune in British Columbia, make your own clothes for the rest of your life. It's not to get off the grid. Why? Because that doesn't change the fundamental problem you have. Do you realize the greatest problem you have is not outside of you, it's inside of you? And you can't escape that. You can't run far enough from that. It doesn't matter where you go, that sin nature, that wrestling with the world is still going to be present everywhere you go. The heart is still an idol-making factory. The reason the world around us produces so much pressure is because it appeals to the desires within us, the passions within us. So what does he say? He says simply, do not be conformed to this world. Peter says it like this, don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. You see what he's saying? He's playing off of desires, thinking, will, 
What does it mean to be conformed to this present world? Again, this world, this present age is characterized in every generation by the same thing. It may manifest itself in a variety of different ways based on context and time, but make no mistake about it, it is ultimately the the core, the root characterized by the very same thing. Here's what it is. Listen, a system of views, values, expectations, goals, convictions, actions which make man the focus and make God irrelevant or secondary. It's a worldview that has man at the center. That's the point. God is relegated to the periphery. Man becomes the center of attention. This is a worldview that worships the world, refusing to worship the creator, instead worshiping the creation. It is a worldview that is defined by the word exchanged in Romans chapter 1, 18 through 25. A foolish, irrational humanity living in the ultimate upside down. It takes multiple forms throughout the generations, but it exchanges the worship of God, the Creator, for the worship of created things. It exchanges what is natural for what is unnatural. The overarching characteristic of the present age has been, is, and will continue to be this determination on the part of man to live life, define reality apart from the Creator. And this is the natural inclination of all of human beings apart from Christ, all of humanity in Adam broken by sin. This is the natural inclination. We are conformed to it when we think like it and act like it. When we embrace its perspective, its values and goals, when we put man at the center and relegate God to the periphery. Let me say it like this. Listen, the greatest threat to the church today is not abortion. It's not the LGBTQ agenda. It's not government. It is as it has always been, that the church of Jesus Christ will be infiltrated and overrun by the spirit of this age, that the church will become a place where God is kicked off of his throne and humanity is placed there instead, where everything they do is ultimately shaped not by the glory of God, but why is what is best for me? We already see this in our day. So how so? One author has diagnosed the church like this, and this is a general statement, so if it doesn't fit you, don't take it personally, but I think this is true of the church at large in many ways, he says this, God is far too inconsequential to the people of God. God's truth is too distant. God is too abstract. He's too irrelevant. God's grace is too ordinary. 
His judgment is too benign. His gospel is too easy. And God's Christ is too common. In other words, the problem facing the church is what it has always been. It's a big me and a small God. And if you push that far enough, it's a no God and only me ideology. I will live for me. I will think only of what gets me further. I will sacrifice nothing for anyone. I will make others sacrifice for me. And the result of this will be that you will be willing to compromise. Listen, the more you get concerned about yourself and and the less you get concerned about the glory of God, the more willing you will be to compromise your morals, your values, your character, your integrity. Those things eventually will cease to matter because they don't get you any further. They don't help you in terms of how you think you ought to be experiencing life. But that is the way the world thinks. This world is its pattern of thinking, its views and values and systems. And we must not embrace conformity to the world. That's what he says. Refuse it. Identify it and refuse it. You see, contrary to our world, we must say as the people of God, sex is not supreme. Success is not satisfying. Power is not preeminent. Glory is not the goal. Comfort is not king. Entertainment is not everything. Leisure is not life. Pleasure is not primary. And reality is not relative. We must unashamedly refuse it, though, listen, we admittedly feel the allure of it. See, how do we do this? We feel this pull. We feel this pressure every single day. It's relentless. It comes to us in a variety of methods and forms. We see it in the news. We see it from Hollywood. I mean, we see it everywhere we turn. It's on billboards. I mean, it's it's in conversations everywhere we go. Listen, my, my encouragement is this. Listen, don't shoot the messengers. Shoot the message, first of all. But the answer... In, in finding freedom from this and instead being conformed to Christ's likeness is found in the next half of the verse. He says, do not be conformed to this world, but in contrast, be transformed, how? By the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You see, the answer is this, listen, rush to be transformed by the word of God. Don't just rush once, rush all the time. Flee the temptations of the world, flee the thinking of the world, and rush to have your thinking and your mind refined and renewed by the Word of God, which is the will of God. While we refuse actively conformity to the world, that's not enough. And we know this instinctively, so many of us have experienced this um, practically in our lives, um, let me give you an example. Some of you, like myself, have some New Year's resolutions to kind of stay active and healthy, maybe to drop a few pounds. Nothing wrong with that. And yet we know this. If, if you want to transform your body, you can't just stop eating junk food, right? I mean, that's going to help a little bit. That's going to that's do some things. 
But you need to actively change your diet and start putting things in your body that are going to rightly fuel it, that are going to give you the proper nutrients and resources that you need. You need to start actively doing some kind of activity, some plan of exercise. You know what I'm talking about, right? Body transformation doesn't happen by accident, neither does spiritual transformation. That's exactly what Paul is getting at. What does it mean, though, to be transformed? That's a good question. What does it mean to be transformed? Well, this word in the Greek is a fascinating word. It's used actually only three other times in the New Testament. It's used in two of the gospel accounts, in Matthew and in Mark, and in the exact same context, where Jesus takes a couple disciples up onto the Mount of Transfiguration. And what Jesus does is so fascinating. He, he essentially transforms himself. He, he unveils to his disciples in a very clear and visible way his glory, the glory of the only true God. For the first time, the disciples see this display of the divine nature of Jesus Christ that they had never, ever glimpsed in this way before. It's a transformation. The Greek word is actually the word from which we get the the English word metamorphosis. You know, that process where a caterpillar turns into a butterfly, which I still don't understand. But when you consider even the metamorphosis of a caterpillar into a butterfly, listen, the substance is not eradicated. It's changed into something that it previously wasn't. It's exactly what happens with Jesus on the mountain. The one other place this occurs in the New Testament is 2 Corinthians 3.18. Let me show it to you. It'll be on the, the screen. Such an important verse. The Apostle Paul writes these words, and we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. There it is metamorphosis. This is what the Spirit of God is doing in the people of God. And I want you to notice that this this happens only through the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's only possible in a human being who is convicted of their sinfulness convicted of the rebellion against the Creator, convicted of their idolatry and worship of the created order instead of the Creator who is above all. And in that brokenness, bows down in humility and confesses their sin and repents of their sin and by faith believes in the gospel of Jesus Christ, believing that God looked down upon us undeserving sinners and in his mercy and kindness, he stepped into our brokenness, living the perfect life that we could never live, dying as a perfect substitute in our place, rising victoriously over the grave, conquering victoriously over sin and death death, exalted again to the right hand of the Father, all, listen, who embrace the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ can now be transformed into the very image of Jesus Christ. It happens through this process at the very beginning of regeneration. 
where the Spirit of God takes the truth of the gospel and illuminates the truth in our hearts and minds and empowers us, giving us the ability to see and understand and believe, giving us the power and the ability to actually repent and have faith. And then it continues. Now, currently, if you're a believer in this process known as sanctification, where we are progressively being made to look more and more like our Savior Jesus Christ, where our, our, our hearts and minds that are now empowered by the Spirit of God are made new by the power of the gospel. Now we are beginning to, to love the things of God. The Word of God is becoming near and dear to our hearts. The longing for righteousness, the hunger for righteousness, the hunger and thirst to seek first His kingdom, it's growing in our hearts and in our lives. It's dominating our lives. And the result is that we want to know him more and more because we want to look like him more and more. And one day, listen, it will end in our final glorification where we will be perfected. But in the here and now, here is how you resist conformity to the world. You transform and you change. You're not the same person today as you were yesterday. A lot of people love the slogan, come as you are. Come as you just come as you are, Jesus, come as you are. Listen, there's a lot of truth to that, but the problem is, is, is you, can't, you can't just come as you are and stay as you are. That's not the gospel. That's, that's not the gospel because that is evidence, listen, that the Spirit of God is not, not in you, that the power of God is not working within you, that the desires created by the presence of the Spirit of God aren't in you, and the fact that you're not changing is simply evidencing the fact that there is no love for God, no longing for God because there is no presence of God. Now, that's as a pattern. I understand we go through ups and downs. I understand there are dips in this Christian life where we're drifting away from our love, our first love, and we need to come back to our first love. I get that, and I got a lot of grace for that because I've experienced that in my own life. But you need to understand this, Christian. God accepts you as you are in order to change you into something that you aren't. He saves you to change you. He transfers you to transform you. I want you to notice the beauty of this command. It implies that you can actually change. Isn't that good news? Because some of us, we get, we get so trapped in our thinking in the Christian life. You know, we get so down in our sin, entrenched in our sin, and maybe our circumstances are so overwhelming. We look at our lives and we say things like, I'm never going to be able to change. And if you've ever said that before, first of all, you're in good company, but I want you to hear this. That is not gospel thinking. That is a rejection and a dismissal of the power of God that raised Jesus Christ from the dead and now lives in you. There is no sin that Jesus hasn't conquered. There is no sin that he cannot overcome through you and in you. You can change, not on your own, the Spirit of God can change and transform you. He's telling us exactly how. See, so how are we transformed then? Well, the simple answer is right here, by the renewal of your mind. I want you to notice that he doesn't hone in on our emotions or our experience. He goes after the mind. You say, why, why would he do that? Because, listen, because our perception of reality is severely limited, darkened, and distorted. 
That's what sin has done to our minds. Our thinking then affects our behavior. But you see, our perception of reality is corrected when the Spirit of God shines His light on the people of God through the Word of God. When the mind is renewed by truth, that truth will now dictate our thoughts, our desires, our values, and then our actions, our behaviors. Behavior always follows belief. And since the mind of Christ, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, is found in the Word of God, the renewing of the mind, listen church, is to be found in the saturation and contemplation of the Scriptures. Our thinking is altered. To go back to 2 Corinthians 3.18, our thinking is altered when we learn to behold the glory of the Lord, right? It's when we behold the glory of the Lord that we are then transformed from one degree of glory to another, that we begin to grow. And sometimes it's a slow process where that change is taking place in imperceptible forms. Other times it's exponential, and the Lord just gives this kind of gospel revival in our hearts and lives. We ought to pray for that, but let me just tell you that's not the norm. The norm in the Christian life is a long obedience in the same direction, where we're constantly fixing our gaze back on the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And every day, little by little, we are being transformed into the glory of the one we gaze upon. It occurs only as we meditate and reflect on the beauty and splendor of the Lord. So how, how should this impact the way I think about reading my Bible? This is really important. You walk away from this sermon and don't get anything else. Please, just, just get this, because this, this will radically, radically change your everyday life and walk with the Lord. Listen, the goal of Bible reading, okay, which every Christian, every Christian ought to be doing regular Bible reading. Can I get an amen? amen. All right, I like that. Now listen, the problem with our Bible reading is not that we often don't do it. Sometimes we don't do it, but oftentimes in our Bible reading, we're doing it all wrong. You're like, well, I don't understand. I'm reading my Bible. Why aren't, why aren't I changing? Why, are, why am I not growing my love for the Lord? Why am I not being more sanctified? Why do I seem to be sliding backwards into sin? I mean, it, maybe this doesn't work. No, no, it absolutely works, but it doesn't work if you're doing it wrong. You can still get some effects of just being in the Word, but listen, when you're looking at the Word properly, it changes everything, including you. Bible reading, the goal of Bible reading, listen, is not completing, okay? You know what I mean by that? It's not like, ah, I just, I did it for the day. Duty, check. Boxes, check. There's nothing wrong with Bible reading plans. We'll talk about that in a second. But listen, if you're doing it to simply complete it, you're missing the point. It's not the goal. The goal of Bible reading is not completing. It's not impressing. It's not to show up to your small group and say, well, Look how much I read this this week, or, or guess how many times I read the Bible this year. It's not about impressing anybody. If that's your goal, I'm, I'm, I, just, I know you're not, it's not going to have the sanctifying effect on your life that it needs to. It's not about debating. The primary goal of reading your Bible is not about debating. It's not about winning an argument. It's not about showing off your knowledge, your understanding. It's certainly not about earning It's not, it's not about earning God's favor. It's not like, oh, if I do this, maybe God will bless me today. How many of us have gotten to that kind of rhythm, that kind of a trap? 
We said this last week. Listen, if, if you're trying to earn grace, that, that is going to degrace grace. Can I tell you what the, what the goal of Bible reading is? It's beholding. It's beholding. It's beholding the glory of the Lord. The glory of the Lord, which is on every page of the Bible. For in beholding, we are becoming. And that is God's intended purpose for your life and for mine. In fact, and I know that because he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. And God is at work within you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Let me say it like this. Listen, this idea of beholding, like, Lord, I want to see you. I want to meet with you. I want to know you. It's like Moses, right? When you open the Bible, God, listen, your, your first prayer when you open the Bible should be, God, show me your glory. And your desire should be, I'm not leaving this seat until I am exposed to the glory of God, until the presence of God floods my heart. And listen, it's not going to look the same every single day, but I promise you, if you fight to sit, to sit there and to stare at the Bible, to pray over the Scripture, to reflect on it, to meditate upon it, to study it, to get yourself deep into the Word of God with the sole intent of beholding His glory, I promise you, you will walk away from there glowing radiating the glory of God because your heart will be so filled with the presence of God. See, this is about worship, church. We worship our way into sin. Listen, we must worship our way out of sin. Let me say it like this. We worship our way into conformity to the world We worship our way into conformity to Christ. And what happens is God renews our values, our systems. He renews our ambitions and our objectives, our affections and desires. So what should this look like? How should this take place in my life? There's... Some recent sermons that the other guys preached here, Pastor Brian in particular preached a sermon where he highlighted how we should be getting into the Word of God. So I don't want to rehash everything, but I I will say this, that if you don't have a plan to be in God's Word, you likely won't succeed in being in God's Word. You must make conscious decisions. You must make sacrifices in your life. And there is, listen, there is no I'm too busy excuse it's just not. I mean, I heard that, I've heard that so many times, so, I can't even tell you. I, I promise you, if you come to me and tell me I'm too busy to be in God's Word, you are not going to get a favorable response. There is no excuse for not spending time with God. And if you're too busy to be in God's Word, you are far too busy, and you've got to learn to cut some things out of your life for things that are so much better. You need to be a person who commits, sacrificing what's necessary to be in God's Word. For me, my most precious times of the day are in the morning, in the quiet of the morning. Just me and the Lord. And that may not be your cup of tea. Hopefully it's a cup of coffee. But you need to figure out what 
works. You need to commit to it. You need to be consistent with it. And your goal of being God's word must be to behold the glory of the Lord. You say, what will this produce in me? What will this produce? Well, he tells us that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You gain this ability to discern what is actually right and true and pleasing to God. You're able to look at the world. And this isn't, this isn't like spelling every single thing out, but what happens is these powers of discernment, they're refined, and as they grow, you look at the world and you can instantly begin to identify what's wrong. The subtle, obvious things, or sorry, the, the obvious things for sure, but the subtle things as well. You can see the overt you know, agenda of the sexual revolution, I mean, you can see the greed and the materialism and all of that that's thrust upon us, that this world thrives upon. You can see a world that is fixated with entertainment and luxury, power and wealth. You can see that, but you can see below that. You can see the idolatry involved in it, and you can diagnose it for what it is, a failure to worship God, and instead propping up idols that are worthless You can take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. You can bring everything you see and are tempted with, and you can line it up with the standard of God's word. That's what a test is, right? You're testing it against the standard, and the gold standard for the Christian life is the word of God. Everything is held up against that. Everything is sifted through it and filtered by it. And you begin to see the subtle lies of Satan. And church, there, I, I, don't, I hesitate to say this because I feel like this is probably true and relevant in every context, but I feel it because I'm living it. I don't know that there's been, ever been a more important time for the church to gain discernment. How quickly and easily we are knocked to and fro by every wind and wave of doctrine how quickly we embrace foolish teaching and foolish teachers. How easily we just, we drink it in. I mean, let me just give you a quick test. We're around the corner here, so hang with me, and we're going to celebrate communion, but this is going to be worth your time, I promise. Amen. <laughs> I don't know where you're at with the Lord, but I know this. There, there are so many subtle lies that are creeping into the church let me give you a test, okay? This is a true or false test. No pressure. I'm not going to make you show hands. Okay, so you keep tracking your own mind, and it's between you and the Lord. True or false? God helps those who help themselves. True or false? Uh, your life is what you make it. True or false? You need to live your truth. True or false, your feelings are reality. True or false, you only live once. True or false, God just wants you to be happy. True or false, you need to let go and let God. True or false, last one, the cross is not about wrath. 
If you answered false to any of those, you failed. <laughs> and I know most of you well enough to know that you were like, or sorry, say if you true, answered true to those, you failed. But if you answered false, <laughs> <laughs> we got a real problem in this church. <laughs> You're like, what kind of church is this? <laughs> you get my point. But you know, all of those, I, I stole all of those from a book that recently came out talking about lies Satan has believers belief. And I'll just tell you right now that, that in my years of ministry experience, those are off. I, I, like, I see this all the time. And people who, who love Jesus, who profess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I say that all, all to say, listen, you want to know what the real pandemic is? It's biblical illiteracy in the church. It's a lack of discernment amongst believers. And there needs to be a change. We need to be people who know the Word and who love the Word, who understand it, Embrace it and who live it. We need to rush to be transformed by the word so that we aren't so easily deceived by the world. And can I just say we need to remember the context of verse 1? These foundational commandments set the stage for everything coming, by the way, in verse 3 all the way through the middle of chapter 15, and we cannot detach this command from verse 1, the appeal that is made on the mercies of God. This command isn't simply duty-bound living. It is total and reasonable worship that flows out of a delight in the mercies of God in Jesus Christ. Paul wants us to never forget what God has done for us. We who deserve wrath have been saved by grace. He sent His one and only Son to die in our place, to pay for all of our sins. And on the third day, He rose victoriously, setting us free from sin and death. And all that is so that we could live a life of worship unto Him. All those who have embraced Christ as Lord and Savior have been forgiven and set free. We live in this present age, but we are also living in the reality and identity of the age to come. So by these mercies of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we have a true hope and we have been given a divine power and we are enabled and called to offer our lives as worship to God. We must therefore refuse to be conformed to the world and rush to be transformed by the word. 